you join me in Ephesians chapter 4, <clears throat> Ephesians 4, in our ongoing series through Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches. This morning we are looking at Christian living, and this is uh, part 6 as we've looked at verses 25 through 32. Our key words for our worshipers in training are Holy Spirit, kind, and forgive. <clears throat> Now, did you know that the word lifestyle is actually fairly new in the English language? Forty years ago, it wasn't even in the 1970s edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the definitive dictionary of what words really are, by the way. We're bordering on extreme nerdiness when you have opinions about which dictionaries are legitimate and which ones aren't. But for my taste, it's the Oxford English Dictionary and not Webster's. Uh, Webster's in 1977 added the word lifestyle, and it is defined there as an individual's typical way of life. It was actually coined by a magazine writer at Time Magazine. Was, they were the first ones to use the word. And for all of Webster's faults, it has actually turned out to be an extremely useful and often used word. You see it everywhere, and you probably have never really thought much about it, but we see things about the senior lifestyle, or the millennial lifestyle, or the beach lifestyle, or the rich lifestyle, lifestyles of the rich and famous. And if you're my age or older, you know what that means. It seemed to convey an idea of individual tailoring of choices that's just right for our day and time, of everyone doing and choosing what they want for themselves when they want it. In fact, it's, it's, sort, of, um, it's sort of a euphemism to choose our own even sexual preferences in our day. It's the name of a TV news show. There's even the Lifestyle Center of America in Oklahoma, and it's, it's dedicated to, quote, becoming masters of good health. And now we have the ubiquitous lifestyle section in a newspaper. And for those who don't know, a newspaper is a large piece of newsprint with words printed on it that gives you the news for what has gone on over the last day. But they exist, and you'll have to trust me that in there is a section called the lifestyle section. And it has advice about health and, and home finance and horoscopes and food guides and notices of upcoming events in the community and, of course, religion. That's where you find religion mentioned in the newspaper, the lifestyle section, because it, too, is a part of the tapestry that makes up our life style. So two interesting words to put together, aren't they? It combines something important and valued, life, with something much more individualized and subjective and option-filled and light, style. So if you put them together, life, style. A few years ago, Hugh Grant said, I don't believe in life, I believe in style. A poll that came out not too long ago was dealing with teenage lifestyles. 
And it keyed in on those who were regular church attenders. And the polling results showed that those teens who were regular church attenders and chose that for their lifestyle had a much healthier lifestyle than those who didn't regularly attend church to include their physical and emotional life and their relationships with others and their, their daily habits. Surprise, surprise. But you know, I guess we can say there are, many, there are as many lifestyles as there are individuals to choose them. After all, remember the definition we have from Webster's, an individual's typical way of life. Now, I think one thing you're going to have a difficulty finding is the pairing of holiness and lifestyle. That is one thing you are probably not going to see. Generally, it seems to be an odd pairing. One seems so unbending and old-fashioned, and the other is pliable and so at home with who you are. You might, you might find the boating lifestyle talked about, but the godliness lifestyle isn't really on the top of the list when you do a Google search. And, and how important is this issue for us as Christians in the age of options and the commitment to choice? Is there any lifestyle with which being a Christian will not fit? Is the Christian's lifestyle to be any different than others? If so, why and how? Really, one of of the perennial questions that we answer every day without even thinking about it is, why do we do what we do? Have you ever stopped to think about how that relates to your everyday life? your normal activities? What is your motivation to live the lifestyle you live and to do the things that you do? That is what the Apostle Paul has been working through as we've taken our time in Ephesians in chapter 4 in considering the Christian lifestyle. This morning we're coming to the end of the chapter, and as we do so, it really reminds me of the beginning of the chapter when Paul said in verses 1 through 3, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul was calling us to a particular kind of lifestyle. A lifestyle that reflected well of the God who has saved us. A lifestyle of humility. A lifestyle of selflessness, of patience, of love, of unity in the body of Christ. And then Paul goes on to explain to us how to live that kind of lifestyle. Namely, by putting off the old self of corruption, the old self of worldliness, the old self of self-satisfaction and self-service, and putting on the new self. And he even goes a step further to show us what that looks like in the new self. And we've been looking at that over the past six sermons. If if I have been made a new creation in Christ, if I've been transformed and changed to no longer be the old man, but have put on the new man to walk in the newness of life, that I am in Christ, I am no longer obligated to obey sin. And so I have the freedom and the ability that I have To put off falsehood, to put off unrighteous anger, to put off stealing. I can put off the corrupt corrupt language of my mouth. I can can put on patience and love and honesty and edifying speech and encouragement. And this morning, Paul's going to add one more layer to all of this. Why? 
Why does he go to this length? Why have we spent so much time in Ephesians chapter 4? Well, if we are Christians, we have to ask the question, what is our motivation to do any of this? Why are we so concerned with what we are being called to here? And that's what Paul is going to answer, and then we'll get a summary statement in the last two verses. So let's read together. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 30, in the blue ESV Bibles, it's on page 978. Ephesians 4, verses 30 through 32. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, the first thing for us to see this morning is our motivation. As Christians, why do we want to live the lifestyle that God calls us to live? We could say the same thing in a lot of different ways, but the way Paul says it here is helpful and important, and it's very simple. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's verse 30. Now, it's helpful for us to consider this verse, I think, in in reverse about our being sealed for the day of redemption first. What does Paul mean by that? Well, he actually addressed this, if you recall, a while back in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He wrote there, um, and he said, "...in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of His glory. Now, we said back there in chapter 1 that the result of having heard and believed the gospel is that the Holy Spirit came into our lives to seal us and to give us a guarantee of our inheritance. And Paul says that the Holy Spirit was promised to us. Where was the Holy Spirit promised to us? Several places. Remember, Jesus told his disciples in John 14, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And again, at the end of Luke 24, Jesus says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So we know from the gospel accounts that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a helper who would dwell within us. And so while we're on this earth, we still have sin in our lives. We still have the world and the flesh and the devil that we are constantly having to deal with. However, we haven't received our glorified state in heaven, but we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. But we're not enjoying the full inheritance yet. Why? Because part of that inheritance is that we have glorified bodies, that we live a sinless life dwelling with Jesus forever and ever. So to remind us of what we have and to assure us that it will come to pass, we have the Holy Spirit. And, and you know as well as I do, if I didn't have the Holy Spirit, I would have zero guarantee of any inheritance because without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't continue to walk faithfully with God. 
You wouldn't continue in the faith. You would completely reject Him and walk away from Him. You are saved by God, but you are also kept by God. Jesus said in John 6, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of that He has given me. This is part of your inheritance, that Jesus keeps you, and He assured assured us He would keep us and would not lose us because it is the will of God that we be kept. And Jesus tells us we can continue to walk with Him. We will continue to be His because we have a Helper who is the promised Holy Spirit who dwells within His children as a seal. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. But the principle here is that Christians are primarily a possession of God's. We are purchased by the blood of Christ. But just because the purchase has taken place doesn't mean the transaction is complete. There's still yet, in Paul's language in verse 30, a day of redemption that is to come in the future, where the purchased possession is to be brought to its rightful owner. So between the purchase and the day of redemption, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. You're probably familiar with the idiom, signed, sealed, and delivered. It's an old song. It's made into a movie. See some heads bobbing as you're thinking about the song. It has historical roots. It's tied to a legal deed. In order to be valid, it had to be signed by the involved parties. It had to be sealed with a wax seal, and then it had to be delivered to the new owner. And so here, Paul is talking about us in those terms. We've been signed for in Christ's blood. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit, is the part he's dealing with here. And we await the day when the church will be delivered over to Christ, finally, fully, and completely, as the bride to the bridegroom. And we will experience this great heavenly banquet when the kingdom of God is consummated in full. And so for now, the Holy Spirit is something of a down payment, an earnest of our inheritance. Because He's the pledge that the inheritance will be ours. And He is a foretaste of that inheritance itself. In other words, anyone who is in Christ, purchased by His blood, and brought to God by the preaching of the Gospel, will be kept by the power of the Holy Spirit until the end. No questions asked. It will happen. We will persevere. Our salvation is sure. And that is great news. But what's the point? Why does Paul bring that up here in the midst of all that he's been saying? Well, he intends for all of this to be a motivation for the believer to live the Christian lifestyle. And that means that we will fulfill what he says first, namely that we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But Paul's appeal is that we be motivated by gratitude. He's saying, hey, remember that The Holy Spirit is keeping you. He's holding you. He's securing you. You're sealed by Him. And so you don't want to grieve Him. That's not something you want to do. There's no threat here. It's simply an appeal to the hearts of His readers. He's saying something along the lines of what you might say to a child. Consider all that your parents have done for you. You don't want to turn against them. They've loved you. They've provided for you. They've raised you and and given you what you've needed. You don't want to turn against them. And so, 
When we think about that question, why do I want to do what God says in His Word? Why is it important to me that I would have this kind of lifestyle that Paul's laying out for me? The answer should be, we should be looking for is, because I love God for all that He has done for me. And I don't want to grieve the Spirit that lives within me. Out of gratitude, I want to love God because He has first loved me. And really, when it comes to talking about what the Christian lifestyle is or what that looks like to live the Christian lifestyle, we're simply saying that we are to pursue holiness. It's one of the primary works of the Holy Spirit, that that we are being made holy. It's what our sanctification is. He's teaching us the Word of God as we're hearing it preached, as we read it. He's convicting us of sin. He's leading us to repentance. He's reminding us of what we know from God's Word to keep us from falling into temptation. All of this pertains to our holiness. So when Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, he's saying, don't run after the things of the flesh that are inconsistent with what the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you desires. And he calls us to ask the question of ourselves. If the Holy Spirit has done what He has done for me, in all of His holiness, in dwelling in me, in keeping me in my pursuit of holiness, in sealing me onto the day of redemption, shouldn't I be concerned to not grieve Him? Brothers and sisters, are you under the authority of the Holy Spirit of God? If so, then your true desire ought to be that you do not want to grieve Him by doing something contrary to His Word. Instead, Live a Christian lifestyle. That's what Paul's telling us. This ought to be a powerful motivator for us. That the Spirit would be pleased, not grieved. And Paul says that here in verse 30. After, after he mentions a few specific examples of what, he is, of what it would look like to grieve the Holy Spirit in verses 25 and uh, 25 through 29, as we've, we've been looking at the past few weeks, but he gets to this part after this, and he says, um, if you do the opposite of what I'm calling you to do, you're going to grieve the Holy Spirit. In other words, consider what we've seen so far. He dealt with falsehood. He dealt with unrighteous anger. He dealt with stealing and unwholesome speech. And he's saying, doing any of those things, you're going to grieve the Holy Spirit. But these are just examples. We could mention all sorts of things. Using the Lord's name in vain because the Holy Spirit is God. And so He's grieved when we use His name improperly. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we say anything contrary to the truth that is revealed in Scripture because the Holy Spirit is the source of truth. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we do anything contrary to the Spirit of love because God is love. And the Holy Spirit is enabling us to love God and to love our neighbors and our enemies as ourselves, and He gives us grace to do all of that. And so if there's any hostility or scorn or impatience in our relationships, the Holy Spirit will be grieved. If you're at odds with a brother or sister in Christ, if there's bitterness or strife or division, you're causing a crack in the church, and that grieves, deeply grieves the Holy Spirit. Brothers, if you're not living with your wives in an understanding way. Sisters, if you're not respecting your husbands. Children, if you're not obeying your parents. 
everyone, if we're not abstaining from sexual immorality, if we're not protecting the integrity of the church to remain in the bonds of peace with one another, we're grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And if we are under the authority of the Spirit, we will not want that. As Christians, we need to think about all that God has done for us. Think of what the Spirit is doing for you, and now consider your heart and your words and your actions. I love the line in one of our songs when we, th- when we say, think what Spirit dwells within you. That's powerful language. Think about the Holy Spirit, who He is and what He is and what He is doing, and remember, He dwells within you. Are you the cause of His grief? Is the Holy Spirit grieved in any area of your life? You could just take these four areas in verses 25 through 29 and reflect on whether or not you're pursuing holiness in truth, in anger, in theft, in speech. And if you're falling short in any of those, you need to confess your sin to God and pray that God would give you wisdom and strength and help. And you can be assured that the very Holy Spirit that you have grieved will be there to assist you and to keep you and to grow you and to give you all that you need to walk in holiness. Well, Paul wraps up the chapter as he's dealt with grieving the Holy Spirit. He wraps it up with these two last verses that stand as sort of summary statements that encompass much of what we've been aiming at as we've dealt with the Christian lifestyle. He brings us back to where we were in verses 17 through 24, and he gives us these put-offs and these put-ons to kind of wrap it all up. First, he says, put off unloving attitudes and actions towards one another in verse 31. And verse 32, put on the loving attitudes and actions of one who knows they've been forgiven much. He begins with the put-offs. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. We've dealt with this a lot. I don't want to belabor the point, but I want to remind us that Paul is writing to Christians. That's an important distinction to make. Remember, he doesn't claim that once they became Christians, that all of this fell away and, and they didn't have any problems anymore. They weren't falling into temptations. No, the Bible teaches us that we, we can be free from all of this. We're no longer obligated to walk in these things, to put them off, to to keep them off, but we need to remain in God's Word. And most importantly, we need the grace of God to work in us through the Holy Spirit to keep us faithful. And we're going to sin. We're going to fall. We need to repent and continue turning and looking back to God. And notice, he doesn't simply say to pray and hope it goes away. No, he gives us an action. He says, put it off. By all means, pray, but don't forget that you are to put it far away from you. It's not pleasant. Sometimes that's painful because in a really twisted and, and, and wrong way, it feels good to be bitter. It feels good sometimes to have wrath and anger and slander towards others. But when we see that in our hearts, if we find traces of these things in our hearts within us, We have to take a hold of them and toss them far away from us. We have to trample them and kill them and not let them back in. He tells us, let it be put away from you, now and forever. 
These things are a living denial of the very faith in Christ that you claim. These are the things that that grieve the Holy Spirit of God because the fruit of the Spirit is not bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. But thank God He doesn't leave us at that. He goes to the put-ons. Now, as it pertains to the church and our life together in the body, as it all comes together for believers, what does the Christian lifestyle look like in summary? It's this. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. That's a great summary of the Christian life in the church together. Well, what does that mean? It means having compassionate, forgiving, kind dispositions toward one another because Christ has a compassionate, forgiving, kind disposition toward us. And I really want to spend the rest of our time narrowed in on what he's saying here and particularly dealing with this issue of kindness and what that actually is because a lot of what he says falls out under that. The fruit of being kind to one another looks like fulfilling a lot of these other things. And kindness today is either, I believe, false, and I'll explain that in a moment, or it just doesn't exist at all. And Christians sometimes can cast it off and say, kindness doesn't matter, just truth matters, and we'll stick to truth and be rid of kindness. So what is kindness? Because we're called to it. We're commanded to be kind. First, I'll define it, and then I'll explain it. Kindness is meeting the needs of others in a very practical sense. It's being someone who's there, someone who's available, someone who's open, someone who's transparent. Kindness is looking at others in the way that we talked about last week. Looking at others, going into conversations with other people, thinking about others with the mindset of, how can I edify, encourage, and build up this person right now in our conversation? And everyone, even non-Christians, will probably very readily say, okay, well, what's the big deal? Of course, be kind. What's the, what's the big deal about that? Well, let's talk about kindness. A few years ago, there were two very fascinating articles in a magazine called The New Yorker. And the point of the first article was to look at actors. And the writer dealt with um, Kevin Spacey, Robin Williams, and, and Jim Carrey. And he says there seems to be a lot of actors who get to a place in their career and they want to play characters of pure kindness and goodness. Characters that are filled, filled with pure concern for other people. And the author points out that in his opinion and in the opinion of a lot of movie critics, these movies that they do with these kinds of characters are really, really bad. He says they're overly sentimental, they're unbelievable because actors forget how hard it is to make extreme goodness dramatically interesting. He says to play a really, quote-unquote, good person is almost impossible to make interesting. Now, of course, you'll forgive the language of good person. We understand the Bible's teaching on that, but I'm just quoting a magazine article. Now, along those lines... There's a later article, it was an interview with an actress, and the actress said this. She said, good characters are very, very difficult to play. And the interviewer said, really? More difficult than evil ones? And she said, yes, absolutely. For example, do you know any really good people? 
Don't you just wonder at them? Don't you just look at those really good people and you wonder and you say to yourself, gracious me, where is their motive for being like that? Don't you just wonder at them? It's so difficult. How, how does an actor figure out someone like that? And the interviewer comes back and says, well, sometimes I must admit, I find goodness a little boring in people, actually. And the actress replies, well, do you see? There it is. It's really good people who are the inhuman ones, not the really wicked people. Now, I'm going to shock you here. If I understand what they're saying, I think, I agree. And here's what I think they're saying. There is a type of goodness, of niceness, of kindness, which seems artificial, forced, and unreal. Why would that be? Well, the answer is because it's possible to have a sort of kindness which is not the result of a changed heart, but it's the, it's the result of a restrained heart. In other words, based on what I said kindness in, how is, how does that happen? How do we fulfill this command? Well, in common sense, kindness is the opposite of selfishness. If you're selfish, you're not kind. But, but there's a type of kindness in which the selfishness that naturally exists in the heart isn't really dealt with. It's not changed, but instead it's, it's hidden. It's expressed through external actions that appear kind and, ge- and generous, but are really ways of getting power over people, of manipulating situations, of getting others to esteem you. In other words, it's a kindness that really, at heart, is really just about you. You can get a good sense of this if you're familiar with the book, or the movie, I guess, of Pride and Prejudice. There are five sisters, and they all have very different personalities. Uh, Three characters named Jane, Mary, and Lizzie Bennett. I'm not going to drag you through a whole explanation of the story, but their character, if you're familiar with it, is really helpful. And I'll explain that. The first is Jane. Jane was a first child. She's just really nice. She is a rule keeper to the extreme. She's kind and eager to please. Now, you know that kind of person. The first instinct for them is always agree, give in, make peace, smile, no need for confrontation. Everyone needs to be happy. I'll do anything to meet that end. But here's the problem. It's kindness that's really all about self. Now, it's not as simple as just wanting to be liked. It's, it's not that. But it's, it's wanting everyone inside your sphere of influence to be happy or else you don't really feel like you have any worth. So this type of person wants their spouse, their children, their boss, their coworkers, their friends, their neighbors. Everyone they have a relationship with needs to be happy with them. And it's not a virtuous thing about being so sensitive about other people that you want their happiness. No, it's a selfish thing because it's all about me. It's a lack of confidence, and so I need you to be happy. And if you're not, I am going to feel empty. Is that kindness? There's another type of kindness. It's more of a moralistic bent. 
It's Mary in Pride and Prejudice. Jane Austen writes in the book that Mary was the plainest of the five girls, and she, so she desperately needed to feel like she was better than other people at something. And so she gets into morality and, and trying to find uh, other people find her to be very charitable. She was always doing nice things for other people, but again, it was all about her because, unlike the temperamentally nice person, who desperately needs other people to be happy, the moralistically nice person desperately needs other people to be grateful. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes, if you do someone a kindness to show him or others or yourself what a fine chap you are, or to put them in your debt and then you sit down and you wait for gratitude, you're going to be in for a lot of disappointment in life. And then he says this, All natural affection is idolatrous and needs to be purified. In other words, all natural kindness is self-serving. I know that sounds strange, but hang with me. So we have the one who wants everyone to be happy with them so they don't feel empty. We have the one who's moralistic because they want everyone to show them gratitude for how great and wonderful they are. The last person I want to point out is Lizzie. And she's not at all artificially kind like Jane or Mary. In fact, she's actually very unkind. I think that's, she's the one the book is really about. She's smart. She's witty. She understands other people. She can easily skewer and mock them and deconstruct them. She knows how to see what they're all about. And so she's harsh. She tells people off. I think she gives a picture of what the Bible is pointing at when it comes to kindness because in order for her to be kind, truly kind, she has to be humbled into it. So Mary and Jane don't have enough inner strength and and genuine kindness because they're dependent on everyone else, so much so that they're, they're being selfish to get something from others. Whereas Lizzie isn't kind at all. And in order to get there, she needs to be humbled She has confidence, but she doesn't have enough humility to be kind at all. Her sisters have enough humility, but they don't have enough assurance. So here's the point I'm laboring to drive home for us. None of us, not a single one of us, not a single person in this world is naturally kind in the way that verse 32 is calling us to be kind. A person may be humbled, but they lack confidence and assurance and the ability to be genuinely kind because they're selfish in their kindness. Or a person may be brash and harsh and lack all humility, so they don't even pretend to be kind. But real kindness, the kindness that we are called to in Scripture and the kindness of the Christian lifestyle is something that's not natural at all. It has to happen by a supernatural work of God, or it doesn't exist. We have to be changed to be made new creations so that we will put off the old self of selfishness that seeks something from others. We will put off the old self of harshness and brashness and pride and arrogance so that we can be humbled so that true kindness will really exist in our lives. It has to happen to us by God. It cannot happen to us on our own. And so the artificially kind people 
they seem less human than the obviously broken people. Because at least broken people know what's going on in their hearts and they let it all come out. But those who are artificial, they're they're not in touch with their own hearts and what's really going on inside themselves. And and biblical kindness isn't going to happen because they haven't learned that it's not all about them. So what's the point? What do we do about it? If you and I have any hope of being kind to one another, tenderhearted and compassionate, forgiving one another as God and Christ has forgiven you, we need our hearts fixed on Jesus. And only when our hearts are fixed on Jesus can we say, Lord, I need to be selfless instead of selfish. And so I need the confidence in my standing in Christ so that I'm not trying to earn everyone else's approval because I don't need it. Because I have Christ, I'm in Christ. And Lord, I need to be humbled instead of harsh and brash because I don't interact with people out of love and compassion. And only when you do these things in me can I truly be kind in the way you're calling me to in your word. You know, every single person has a story and we live those stories out every single day. And, and we're so naturally self-focused, whether you know this or not, you're doing this, that when we encounter people, they're entering into our story. And our tendency is to think, I wonder if I can get them to play the role that I want them to play. So our story will go in the direction that we want it to go if we can manipulate that relationship in that way. But we tend to forget sometimes that every human being is also part of a bigger, grander, more important story. And the end of that story is either glory or great terror. And so the call of the Bible in your life is to live a Christian lifestyle by lifting up your eyes to see that every encounter you have with others... Yes, they're moving into your story, but you're moving into their story as well. And both of you are coming together in the greater story. So as you're you're going to come into their story filled with all of your own needs, what kind of questions are you going to ask of yourself? It should be something along the lines of what we talked about last week. How can I bless and encourage this person to look to Christ. Not something like, how can I use this person to make myself feel better? How can I use this relationship to to make me look better? No, as God watches and guides and protects me, what can I do to move this person and our relationship toward God? Because every day in our conversations, in the way we walk with others, we are either moving toward God in hope and openness and love and encouragement with one another. Or we continue to stand back. We continue to hold each other back from the cross. We continue to walk in the flesh. The Christian lifestyle is saying, I live not primarily for myself, but I put myself last, and I live to the glory of God and the benefit of others. That's what all of this is about. And so the Christian lifestyle is truly Christian because it can only happen if I am a Christian. The Christian lifestyle is that which brings me to a person, to any person in any situation in life, and I realize that in Christ I have something of infinite value and I want to come into their life the way God has come into my life, not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. 
That's kindness. That's compassion. And that's what gives me the opportunity to be in a relationship with them so that no matter what happens, I can forgive them when they fail me because I know what it means to be forgiven. It means I can love them recklessly because I have nothing to lose because I'm confident in my standing with Christ. It means I can be humbled and broken before them because they're broken too. And they need to know that I'm real and that I'm walking with them. That is the Christian lifestyle. And so the question for us to ask ourselves this morning, am I living in it? Am I living the Christian lifestyle? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time we've spent in Ephesians chapter 4 the challenges we've received from your word, and we look forward to all that lies ahead for us yet in Ephesians. But we pause here and we give you thanks, Lord, that by your word we have your law that breaks us and cuts us and knocks us down to size and brings us to the end of ourselves and humbles us to the dust because we know we fall far short of what you require and what you call us to. But we are reminded yet again that we are accepted in Christ because Christ has fulfilled your law on our behalf. That Christ has loved us and made us his own. And Father, we thank you that you keep us by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And our great prayer today, Father, is that you help us as your people to live the Christian lifestyle to look to your word, to be conformed to your word, and that we would seek to be obedient to your word, not out of fear, not out of a, a pursuit to try and earn something from you. We have all that we need in Christ, but out of gratitude and thanksgiving. Our desire, God, is that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit, but that we would delight in knowing that we've been sealed for the day of redemption and we want to please the Lord our God, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And so we pray that you would help us, O oh God, to be kind, to be tender-hearted, loving one another and forgiving one another as you and Christ have forgiven us. We give you thanks and we know by your power alone can all of this be our lives reflected to the world of who we are in Christ. And we ask these things in His name. Amen.